Christ is risen. I love that liturgy. I love to be able to say it every time uh, we come around to this part of the year after a long season of Lent. I like it even more than the liturgy you get at Chick-fil-A when you say thank you. (laughs) So when my sons were quite young, they could be competitive with one another, as brothers can often be. And there were days when it seemed like there was always a contest of some kind going on. So their mother and I tried to teach them that it isn't important that you always win, uh, that there doesn't always have to be someone who's better than everybody else. They just don't have to do that. And this attempt to teach them this sort of paid off eventually. One day our oldest son, Asher, about five, my, his younger brother, Micah, about three at the time, I think, found themselves in some kind of competition. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it probably had something to do with Legos. And Asher did something which appeared to Micah that Asher was trying to outdo him. And Micah looked at his brother and said, It's not a contest, Asher. It's not a contest, Asher. So on some level, at least for a season, our teaching about not always having to compete with one another had seeped in. In fact, to this day... To this day, if our family is together and someone is trying to do something uh, to outdo somebody else or to prove to the best, we will say, it's not a contest, Asher. <laughs> and it occurs to me that John, the author of our passage today, might need to learn that lesson too. Early on the first day of the week, John 20, verses 1 to 3, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. I want us to pause here for a second. I want to ask you to do something a little different this morning. I want to ask you to hold on to the two phrases that I have there highlighted. The first day of the week, and it was still dark. Just hold on to them in your mind, your heart. There's a piece of paper underneath most of the pews. You need to write them down or put them in your Bible app live event notes. And we'll come back to them a bit later for a deeper level of meaning to the resurrection that many of us perhaps are not familiar with. Now, if you were listening closely to the reading from John 20 a moment ago, you might have heard some competitive language from John about Simon Peter and John running to the tomb. Or earlier this week in our staff meeting, we were prayerfully reading through this passage a couple of times, and all of us admitted that we wanted to laugh at John's insistence that he got to the tomb first. This is how it sounds. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now you'll notice that John does not refer to himself using his uh, first person. He doesn't do that. It wasn't uncommon in that day and age as a sign of humility to refer to yourself in the third person. He calls himself the other disciple. And five times in the Gospel of John, five times, he not only calls himself the other disciple, he calls himself the one Jesus loved. So, when you put that together with he beat Peter to the tomb, it can sound a bit competitive. John saying, I got there first, and he loved me. You can almost hear him saying to the other ones, not you. And we want to say, it's not a contest, John. Now, I'm teasing a bit about John's competitive nature here, especially when he says that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. John is not implying that Jesus loved him more than anyone else or he didn't love anyone else. John is 
writing his account some 60 years after these events. And all these years later, as he's telling this story, it seems that John is still amazed that Jesus loved him. It's not that he loved only me, John is saying. It's that he loved even me. Sixty years later, and that's still very much with him. Well, while Peter may come into the tomb second place, or he comes to the tomb second place, he enters into the tomb, John tells us, first. And there he discovers there's no body. He sees the linens that were wrapped around Jesus' body lying there and the headcloth laying there as well. And then eventually, John goes in. Verse 8, Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. And there he goes again. We don't care who got there first, John. It's not a contest. In the very next verse, John tells us that they still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And yet, John says in verse 8, that he went into the tomb, he saw, and he believed. Believed what? It's clear from the passage that they did not yet believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. The the resurrection wasn't even on their radar. They didn't know it was going to happen. No, what John and Peter now believe is that Mary was right. Someone has stolen the body of Jesus and taken it somewhere. And so they leave the tomb, we were told, and they go back to where they were staying. And I picture them leaving dejected and bewildered. Not only has Jesus died, but now someone has taken his body. One of the challenges that we can have as we read a story like this that we are almost over-familiar with is that we don't always see or sense the suspense, the, the excitement, the freshness that the story must have had for those who first read it. Again, John is writing his gospel about six decades after these events, and he's writing to a new audience, many of whom perhaps had never heard the story. And they may not know exactly how it ends. And the way John tells the story is designed to stretch it out, to slow things down, and to ratchet up the tension all at the same time. And when I think of this, it reminds me of when I've gone to see a movie, and I'm always fascinated with a movie about an historical event. And even though I know what's going to happen. I know where things are headed. They still, the cast, the crew, the director, they still manage to keep me in suspense. They still manage to make me wonder how this is going to turn out when I know how it's going to turn out. Take the Ron Howard film, Apollo 13. came out in 1995. After the heat shield was damaged on the capsule, we didn't know if the astronauts were going to be able to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere safely or if they were going to burn up on re-entry. During the re-entry phase, there was an expected three-minute communications blackout. That is, if, if mission control heard from these astronauts at the three-minute mark, they were fine. If they did not hear from them, then possibly something catastrophic might have happened. The communications blackout went another one minute and 37 seconds. And the film captures this tension in real time. So for four and a half minutes, we don't know if they're going to make it. Spoiler alert, everybody got home safely. In fact, by the time time this movie uh, was in theaters, everybody had been home safely for 25 years. But it didn't feel like that as we were watching the movie. It was tense. It was suspenseful. Are they okay? Are they going to make it back alive? The story was told so well that we, the audience, were on the edge of our seats. 
I, I put that scene in your Bible live event. Watch it. You're going to feel it all over again, and you know they come back alive. This is kind of what John is doing for us in his account of the resurrection. John chapter 20 is designed to draw us in. It creates suspense, even for those of us who know how the story ends. Everything, every detail is revealed slowly. Details are given out little by little and stretched out to sort of set up the reveal. And even though we know how it ends, there is suspense. Then in verse 11, the focus shifts back to Mary Magdalene. Now she, she, must, have, she must have come back to the tomb with John and Peter. I'm kind of surprised John didn't say that he beat her back to the tomb too. Whenever she eventually got back to the tomb and after they have left and gone back where they are staying, Mary is still there. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. After she responds to the question that is asked by the angels, she turns and Jesus is standing right in front of her, only she doesn't recognize him. Either because in her tears and her grief she just couldn't, or because perhaps Jesus is hiding something from her, at least at first, or maybe there's something to the nature of a resurrected body that it doesn't look quite the same as it did, or maybe a combination of all of the above. Then in verse 15, he asked her, Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Here's the third phrase I want you to hold on to. Thinking he was the gardener. Thinking he was the gardener. Jot it down, hold it in your mind, whatever works for you. So these are the three that we're holding on to. The first day of the week, it was still dark, thinking he was the gardener. Now, no other Gospels give us this kind of detail into Mary's encounter with the resurrected Jesus. All of them... In all of the accounts, all four Gospels, Mary is involved along with other women, at least one of whom is also named Mary. The witness of women in that day and age was not considered reliable in a court of law. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, when the women come back and tell the disciples, Luke says it was nonsense. They didn't believe them. It was nonsense. And all of this, to me, speaks of the reliability of the Gospel accounts. If these things were fiction, if they were just made up, no one in their right mind would have chosen women to be the primary witnesses to the resurrection. No one would believe it. And if these things were fiction, somebody, it seems to me, would have said at some point, wait a minute, we have an awful lot of people named Mary. This is going to get confusing. We should change some names. But they didn't do that thus lending incredible weight to the testimonies of the Gospels in the early church that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. Christ is risen. Christ is risen After Mary has asked Jesus, whom she assumes to be the gardener, where they put the body of Jesus, Jesus said to Mary, just Jesus said to her, Mary. And I like to think of how he said that. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. When Jesus calls her name, Mary recognizes, realizes that it's Jesus. This takes us back to John chapter 10, where Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd, and he says that my sheep 
know my voice when I call them by their name. Our good shepherd speaks to us and calls us by name. And this Jesus makes into a full and beautiful reality for Mary at the scene. Verse 17. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers, the disciples, and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. That's a strange phrase. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me. Do not hold on to me. But we are not told that Mary touched him or hugged him or anything. Literally, she simply turned to him. Jesus likely isn't telling her not to touch him, literally or physically, but not to hold on to the way things were. Not to hold on to things as they were. Not to hold on to Jesus in the flesh because the Father God in his wisdom and redemptive plan, in in that redemptive plan, it's time for a new phase of the mission. And that phase will begin, Jesus says, when he leaves once again, when he ascends to the Father. And so while the resurrection promises us new life in the here and now and in the hereafter. It is the ascension of Jesus that speaks to the launching of the next great phase in God's plan of redemption for all of creation. What the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, 19 and 20 calls the reconciliation of all things. What the Apostle Peter, the same one who came in second in this race, what the Apostle Peter calls in Acts three twenty one, the restoration of all things. All things have not yet been restored. All things have not yet been reconciled to God. But Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave have set in motion a regenesis, a regeneration, a rebooting, a new creation in which you and I can live even now. Now let's come back to those three phrases I told you to keep in mind. The first phrase, the first day of the week. The first day of the week. Now, what we may not realize about John's gospel is that it is structured in such a way as to take into uh, consideration, as to remind us of the seven days of creation that we find in Genesis 1 and 2 in the first books of our Bibles. And John tipped his hand that he was going to do this, that this was going to be important, in the very first sentence of his gospel. And there he quoted from the first words of the book of Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John echoes this in the first verse of the first chapter of his gospel. John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. John wants us to know that the person that he refers to as the Word was and is God. And that that God, that person, became flesh and blood and made his dwelling among us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. John is reminding us of the first week of creation from the very beginning of his gospel. It's going to be important in how we read it. So stay with me here. After this initial opening where he reminds us of day one of creation, and that week, John will lay out in his gospel the seven days of creation in more than one way. I can think of two immediately. One of the main ways he's going to do that, he's going to remind us of the seven days of creation, is the seven signs in the Gospel of John that Jesus does, the seven miracles. Each sign, then, is meant to represent one of these seven days of creation. The seventh sign, or the seventh day of that week, 
is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now I ask you, if Lazarus is raised on the seventh day of the week, the last day of the week, of this week that John is creating, a new week is about to begin, right? Day one. In John 20, once again, verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, early on the first day of the week, Mary went to the tomb. This is John's way of saying that Jesus' resurrection began a new week of new creation. In Jesus' resurrection, God is starting things over, and it's day one. Second phrase that I asked you to hold on to was, it was still dark. It was still dark. Now again, John is again drawing our attention back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, this time verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Back in John 20, it's dark. It's dark. John is once again reminding us of where things have come from and where God is taking all things. They came from chaos to creation and they are leading to new creation. The third phrase I ask you to hold on to, thinking he was the gardener. This is my favorite one. Thinking he was the gardener. This is what John tells us about Mary's assumption when she first encounters Jesus but doesn't recognize him. Again, chapter 20, verse 15. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will go and get him. Now John is the only one who gives us this kind of detail. And he does so on purpose. If Mary thought that he was the gardener, it stands to reason she was in a garden. In John's gospel, Jesus is betrayed in a garden, Jesus is buried in a garden, and Jesus rises again in a garden. Now I ask you, why would John want us to think of a garden in this? What could possibly be, what other garden might there be that is important in the pages of Scripture? The Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2 this time. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it by Drawing our attention back to the Garden of Eden, John makes two powerful, profound theological moves in one breath. He reminds us once again that what is going on in Jesus' resurrection is directly tied to those creation narratives in Genesis 1 and 2, and he portrays Jesus to us as a new Adam who is in the garden but does not fall into temptation like the first Adam and Eve did. Jesus is in the garden, and he passes the test. God is launching a new week of this new creation in the resurrection of Jesus. After reflecting on John 20, pastor and author Brenda Salter McNeil says this, Adam and Eve's story begins in a garden of paradise and ends in a garden of suffering and pain. But Jesus' journey from Holy Week begins in a garden of pain and suffering and ends in a garden that testifies to resurrection and new creation. And that word paradise, by the way, something I just learned the last couple of weeks, that word paradise is what we call a loan word. That is, we have borrowed it from another language. It comes to us from Persian, through Greek, through Latin, through French. Paradise. Anybody want to take a guess what the original word paradise meant? Garden. And this is what Jesus says to the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 2. Today you will be with me 
in the garden, in paradise. And with Jesus' ascension, those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ now carry this work of new creation forward. If Easter is day one of the new creation, friends, then by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, we are day two and day three, and on and on it goes. You know, sometimes we are tempted to think, or we've been taught to think, and to believe that one day God will wipe everything out. He will burn it all up and destroy it and start over again. But I would say to you, that imagery within Scripture of burning things up is about a purging. It's about a cleansing. It's not about destruction. What is evil will be burned away. What is of kingdom value, what is good and beautiful and true, will remain in the new heavens and the new earth, and we get to play a part. The The Apostle Paul testifies to this reality in a couple of places. For this morning, one of those will suffice. There's a very lengthy chapter in one of Paul's letters, his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, where he talks a lot about resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, our own resurrections, and he reminds us that since we know where all things are headed, since we know that Jesus has been raised from the dead and we too will be raised from the dead, we can and should engage in the work of new creation now. He writes this, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you, Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The the kingdom work we do, Paul is saying, the contributions that you and I make to this new creation that God is making will survive. They will not be burned up. You don't have to take my word for it. N.T. Wright scholar in the New Testament, says this, but what we can and must do in the present if we are obedient to the gospel, if we are following Jesus, and if we are indwelt, energized, and directed by the Spirit is to build for the kingdom. This brings us back to 1 Corinthians 15, 58 once more. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become, in due course, part of God's new world. And then finally, bringing it down to yet a more practical level, Pastor and author Ken Shugamatsu says this, As strange as it may seem, if the resurrection actually happened, if God will one day renew this earth, then every prayer, every act of love and kindness, every minute teaching a special needs child to read or walk or listening to a lonely elderly person, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God, every act of care for the earth will somehow find its way into the new creation that God will one day bring about. The smallest acts of kindness become infinite. The smallest acts of kindness become infinite. Wherever you are on this journey, Jesus invites you, in C.S. Lewis's words, to go further up and further in. God doesn't only want you to experience His goodness, truth, and beauty one day 
off in the future. God wants you to experience that now. It is what Jesus has referred to over and over in the Gospel of John as the abundant, eternal life to the full. But God has even more for us. Not only do we get to experience the abundant life, but we get to partner with God in bringing God's new creation into being, into this world, and into the next. And again, wherever you are on your faith journey, I hope you will join us again next week to discover more of what God has for us, more of what God has for you. Friends, on this Easter Sunday 2022, let us not sell the resurrection of Jesus short. Let us celebrate that in Him and in His death and resurrection, we have indeed been given new, abundant, and eternal life. And let us celebrate that we are now a part of God's new creation and that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let us celebrate that if Easter is day one, that you and I are prepared and equipped and called to live into helping God, partnering with God in building the new creation even now. Our work in the Lord is not in vain. How do we know this? Because Christ is risen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the reality that we celebrate this day. May we celebrate it every day of our lives, I pray. God, I, I pray for those of us who perhaps are over-familiar with this story, that you would cause it to speak to our hearts afresh. I pray, God, that we would remember what your resurrection means, not only for us, but for this world that you have loved and continue to love. Help us, O oh God, to find in your spirit and the strength of one another, and the strength of your word to go forth into the world and to partner with you in building your kingdom, in building the new creation. And for those, God, who might not yet have experienced or come to know or to begin to experience the abundant life that you give us in Christ Jesus, Lord, may they find the courage and the hunger and the desire to take whatever next step you're calling them to. To find someone and talk to them after the service, to show up and join with us in worship next week, to go to a friend whom they know loves and tries to follow you. God, would you lead all of us ever deeper, ever further up and further in, into your kingdom, that we might be resurrection people, that we might be those who practice resurrection every day of our lives. And may you receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.